the award-winning Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me as always is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, most prominently The Beer Bible, now volume two. That's correct. And award-winning. <laughs> you put that in there. What, Patrick? I Tell had, me more. I had to do the intro twice. Uh, <laughs> it turns out that unbeknownst to us, which was too bad because we could have tried to juice the numbers. It, it, absolutely. We uh, could have definitely brought our corrupt, corrupting element. The, the Willamette Week, our local weekly uh, news publication in, in Portland, uh, named us the second... Best, most popular, second something, second best local, or second, yeah, second most popular, second most popular, well, well, it was a, it second was, best local podcast. It was actually uh, a people's choice kind of thing. All right, and this is and we came how, in second, and that's how we could have swung the vote had we known that's and right. uh, gotten all of the tens of listeners. To- you, you sent you sent this to me, and I I figured you were uh, you were winding me up, but um, no, it's real. Or taking the piss, as they say, uh, but <laughs> but it was real, which is phenomenal and amazing and stunning that I didn't even know any, any such things happen. I don't actually read the Lent Week often. I read the articles that pop up on my Twitter feed, but totally. But who and, knew? But who knew? And uh, you know, we are up against three. Not one, not two, but three sex podcasts. Well, I was about to say we lost to a sex podcast, which is you know. Probably as it should be. We come beat. On. We beat. Sex. We beat two sex podcasts. Though I mean, come on. Yeah, people, really. Or uh, beer before sex? Never. Nah, come on. It's it's uh, you know. We're uh, awesome. Well, yeah. thank you, good people of Portland or the Lamont Week respondents for Indeed. voting us second place. In... It was it was probably like they got fourteen total votes. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> We got two. And we got Everybody two. Else got one. <laughs> uh, and this, the number one got four. Nevertheless, we're riding this horse at yeah. least at least through our next yeah. podcast. But uh, we're number two, baby. Yes, <laughs> it's good because you know it's kind of it's kind of arrogant to say we're number one. So you don't really want that. Like As, that's exactly. Well, you can you can be both boastful but not be arrogant if you're number two. It's, it's really on brand for us, you know. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Quality, but not that much quality. So it's been a little while. It has. Uh, Apologies you, for that. What's what's new with you? Well, you've been to Maine. I've been to Maine. Is that true? Have I been to Maine and back since the last podcast? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's why I'm blaming our long absence. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, I was actually kind of busy in Maine because I was there with my brother and his daughters and, uh, and flew into Bangor instead of Portland, which meant I didn't get to make my pilgrimage to the main beer company which is too I, bad but i did buy a buttload of their beer yes fortunately <laughs> loaded up my fridge they are everywhere so it's easy enough to find uh sort of although i had to be um i had to be kind of intrepid really which was i went to my local um uh, trade wind store which is hannaford's chain if you're mainer you know what i'm talking oh, about i absolutely know hannaford's they have a like a specialty is that like the 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 Whole Foods of Hannaford's? Uh, I think it's just the smaller, the smaller ones, uh, and I think they. Uh, my guess is they bought up some smaller little chain of smaller stores. So it's not like one of the big Hannaford's. It's one of the smaller ones. I go to the beer uh, cooler, which in the Hannaford's is you get your you get your glass front case in, and then you can go behind, and there's you can get the beer from behind. Go into the cool room. Uh, anyway, there was only one little poor main beer company bottle sitting there and a bunch of empty slots. And I thought, oh. So I go back into the beer cooler to see if they're around. Nothing's around, but there are some plain brown boxes behind. And I decide, <laughs> and I decide I'm tearing these suckers open. And it was the motherload of main beer that just hadn't stocked the shelves. So I just was opening all these brown boxes and taking all the bottles out of them. Nice. Uh, and yeah, if you looked carefully, they do have a little stamp on the side of the box, but it's a very discreet because that's their sort of part of their brand a very discreet little thing but i just saw these plain brown boxes and i thought that to me that's that sounds that 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 has all the hallmarks of a main beer box i'm going for it so yeah i got everything that is awesome got my lunch got my dinner got my peeper my favorite my favorite of all time did they have the the one with something in the title that's a happy little something Uh, i know exactly what you're saying i don't think i got that one this time that's my favorite. Uh, but in you're the, a peeper guy. I'm a whatever that name is. Yeah, guy. I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't come up with a name. Uh, uh, Both pale ales. Awesome pale ales. 
Yes, yeah. Uh, and then they had a specialty IPA, which is also really good. So yeah, pails and IPAs, they, uh, they, they knock my socks off. So that was, really, that was really good, but I didn't, it wasn't a very beery trip other than that. How was, uh, how was the weather? I did, I did have the Oxbow lager on a nice sail of Penobscot Bay. So the, the weather was phenomenal. It was amazing. Uh, probably too amazing. <laughs> In fact... Uh, Rain is warming up. Yeah. So it was warm and sunny the whole time. No rain, <laughs> no storms, which I kind of uh, regret a little bit. Um, but it was nice for us because it was a little early in the season. Usually August is pretty, pretty dependable, but uh, July can be a little bit mixed. And it wasn't mixed. Um, so it was really nice. Which brings me to something I want to mention, which is just heard from our friends, um, just got a call from our friends in, in Bavaria mm, right. this morning, and it's uh, like a nightmare there. Well, they're, they're very Oregonian in the sense that they totally overreact to weather, but it's yeah. hot as F there, yeah. and yeah, yeah. super duper duper dry, they were saying, and I'm wondering, is the, is the hop harvest being, being uh, uh, impacted because it... It, it, from this one person's anecdote, it sounds like basically it's almost a, a hellish inferno and they're all going to die. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I know that they had uh, some hailstorms early, earlier in, in Hollertau, which mm. is the, the Bavarian hot field, yeah. uh, 45 minutes north of Munich. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I, I think the thing about Germany is they don't do irrigation. Uh, they've never had to do irrigation because yeah. they get rain and it's not that hot. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know what's going on with hot fields, but it wouldn't surprise me if either they're going to have to start doing irrigation and it's going to turn into Yakima. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they live outside of Nuremberg and she has this lovely garden, grass and flowers and everything. She says, all dead, just dead, 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 because they never watered it. They never had to water it in the past. So uh, that goes, that speaks to your, uh, yeah. I guess they're used to sort of regular rainfall. Yep. even through the warm season so yeah uh, times yeah it is uh, so on that happy note yeah. let's, <laughs> let's go back to beer <laughs> uh, anyway so thank you for asking my my time in Maine was fantastic uh, uh, the weather was amazing um, spent one lovely afternoon cruising the Penobscot Bay on a big uh, sailboat that my uncle no cousin really um uh, owns and drinking Oxbow Lager, and that was lovely. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. What yeah. about what about you? How's your summer been? Uh, it's been fine. We had that really hot snap, uh, and at the tail end of it, I went to Astoria, which people on Twitter will have noticed or social media. I was putting posting social media mostly to taunt the poor bastards in Portland who were still suffering. And I, knew, I was inclu- one, including you, including <laughs> you, and basically all my college friends had had decamped to the coast, and I was stuck at home. <laughs> I know that was pretty funny that we were all there at weather. the same time. <laughs> like, oh, it's pretty, it's pretty warm out. I'm kind of sweaty. Seventy six. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was like 98. It's time here. to go get my hoodie, and I'm in 100-degree sweltering weather. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, that was a lovely text stream. That's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so how's Astoria, and how are our friends doing at Bowie Beer uh, Company? So, this is a deep, deep cut, because I doubt, I doubt very many people have been to uh, the waterfront at Astoria. But if you have, you'll know that um, there is a one public dock that's got a like a pagoda that mm-hmm. you can get up yep, on top of, so it's, yep. it's high. A little viewing platform. Yep. A little viewing platform. That is one block from Bowie. Yeah. So it's really handily located. So uh, they've got Bowie all Bowie. Uh, in case people forgot, is the brewery that collapsed. Yeah, we mentioned this in the pod or two ago. Right. And uh, uh, it's a brewery on piers in the Columbia River on at a, in Astoria, and um, it appears. I think you confirmed that. It looks like the piers collapsed right. underneath it. You had you had speculated that it wasn't visible uh, from the damage. the The roof clearly had collapsed, and it wasn't clear what had happened. Bowie hasn't said anything. Well, if you're there, it's all blocked off, so you can't get anywhere near the brewery. But if you go to that pier, uh, you can get up and look and see. You can go up and you can go down. You can get down at the river level and you can get up high. Mm-hmm. So you can see, you get up high and you see that the the roof they have this big sign, Bowie Beer Company. Yeah. Uh, and half of it has been sheared off as the roof collapsed. Right, yeah, and then you go down and you look and you see underneath the brewery at the 
like still above the water, but not very high up the water. You see that sign, yeah, which is riding on the roof. The the water, yeah. <laughs> so I would, I would, I am now on board with your theory that the, the pilings had to collapse. You don't, I don't know how you get a roof yeah. under. So the it building. was a period of really heavy rain. We got, I think it was the wettest May on record, and we were, the river levels were super high. So I imagine that it degraded the piers, and it's super heavy business. Yeah, brewing beer and keeping it in giant. <laughs> tanks uh so that was my suspicion um yeah i mean the, the brewery has rebounded they've got a uh there's this public location that was going to be this kind of cool place where they're going to have um different uh local eateries and i don't know what all mm-hmm. um yep. and they immediately shifted all of their they, that's their pub now basically yeah uh so you can get buoy it's just not for people who've been to the Bowie Pub, um, which you're sitting literally out on the water, yeah. looking out over this this yeah. gorgeous vista, it doesn't have that. So, yeah. but it looks like the brewery's going to survive. And it's a temporary pub location. Um, I think it used to be like because I Google mapped it, it used to be like an old Sears or something like that. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, way back when it was probably a canning plant, right? Uh, yeah. Well, the the address of their temporary brewery was on, oh, that. on the main drag. Yeah. A temporary pub uh-huh. was on the main drag, and it looked like it used to be a Sears storefront or something that they've taken over. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's it's going to be pretty cool. That building is going to be pretty cool because it's got a backside that, that yeah. goes down to the, what is a wharf? I don't know, to the dock. Anyway. Right. Um, so the back is all cool and atmospheric and warehousey, but like 19th century warehousey. Yeah. The front is all modern. and so. Do you know if they own the brewery building themselves? I do not know. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. It's like a legal morass. Who's liable for right. fixing it and dealing with it? And if it's if it, if they lease the building, then I can just imagine this could drag out. So totally. Fingers fingers crossed that it doesn't. Um, they do seem to have pivoted quickly and successfully. So good news. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure uh, uh, no trip to Astoria is complete without visit to Fort George. So. It's always my first stop, <laughs> partly because, uh, well, they have great beer, but also uh, they have ahi tuna uh, fish and chips, which are my very favorite in the world. Yeah. So I'm taking my taking the, uh, the in-laws there, but um, might do a reservation in advance, which I think requires you got to be upstairs in the pizza place. So, if you Yeah, that's definitely true. You have to have a reservation upstairs. However, hot tip, uh, if you're willing to sit at the bar, there's usually space at the bar and you can just waltz right in, which yeah. is what my wife and I do because we're just two and it's yeah. really easy but if you have a if yeah, you have a group you can pull a big group but it'll be fun to take my in-laws to Astoria and to uh, see Fort George uh, so shall we pivot to our podcast topic of uh, the day let's do it alright so if a Portland brewery wants to drive a keg of beer across the river to Vancouver Washington and they have filled the, out the proper paperwork with the state they're allowed to the state of Oregon, however, forbids Washington breweries from doing the same. This rankled Justin Lee, owner of Duanel Country Ales in Goldendale, Washington. He's a lawyer, and he was pretty sure that didn't pass legal muster. A few weeks ago, three breweries sued Oregon for the right to self-distribute south of the Columbia. Today, we have Justin on the line, and we'll talk to him about the lawsuit and the way protectionism hampers breweries' access to markets. All that soon, but first, here's the news. In a little local news, we have one brewery opening and one closing. They're both instructive. The newcomer represents the first actual brewery in the western suburb of Beaverton in seven years, Binary Brewing. It's remarkable that Beaverton is so bad for breweries. Uh, uh, on the way out is West Coast Grocery in the densely breweried inner southeast, proof that even a place as beery as the Buckman neighborhood, a new brewery can fail. So it's, it is kind of interesting that we're seeing some, some shifting around there. And, and I still, I don't understand why you have like a thousand breweries in a, in a 10 block radius in, right. in southeast Portland and an entire suburb, which is not very far away from downtown Portland in Beaverton can't manage to keep even one brewery going. It's so weird. Yeah, it is true. Although I think there have been some successful tap rooms. I'm thinking of Ex Nova, for example, that's in downtown they're, Beaverton. They're definitely tap rooms for sure. Yeah. So they're uh, starting to see some success. So we'll see. Yeah. I hope, um, I hope that's right. Uh, yeah. But it is curious. Yeah. It's so weird. It's, uh, you know, I guess it's sort of the, the, the vibe, um, 
I don't know, I'm, I'm about to make a big broad statement that probably isn't supported by facts, but, you know, sort of the, the suburban uh, attitude towards sort of local business isn't the same as the urban attitude in the sense that, um, uh, I don't know, the suburbs are all kind of the, the, the flotsam and jetsam of, soci of um, society in the sense that you just sort of catch whatever is coming along and um, there isn't as much a sense of place. Uh, you can you can contact me, Jeff at Birvana Blog, uh, with your criticisms of Patrick's incredible uh, dissing of the suburbs. Dissing of the suburbs. <laughs> All you suburban people. Clearly, Patrick does not live in the suburbs. I don't know. I just feel like people who move to the suburbs do so because they don't want to be super connected to a specific place. Maybe. Yeah, I. I've never lived in a suburb myself. So it's also I, cheaper, I, get more land, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Good schools. So I don't mean to dismiss that. But I just mean uh, I feel like it's less, uh, there's less of a connection to it, uh, to a place in the sense that like a, if I was a setup at my local brewery, I would get this sort of steady support to local consumers. They're more fickle. It's maybe. true. I, Who knows? Who knows? That's my theory. Something's going on there. Yeah. And uh, it's sad. West Coast grocery story is sad. First off, I don't think you should... Name your brewery, West Coast Grocery. Yes, I think that was the first, the first mistake. But they had a sexual harassment uh, situation that they handled poorly. Um, eventually, came I think around uh, and tried to do the right thing, but yeah, and actually, maybe too little, too late. Well, and I think, I think it was. I think people were just. It was the wrong time for something like that. It was a, the owner was in his twenties. Uh, he was not responsible. It was the, the head brewer at the time harassed uh, one of the wait staff. And uh, he didn't actually take that long to fire the guy, but he did hesitate a little bit, and then he fired him. Um, yeah, and, and, and in the era of social media, you know, hesitating at all can just be a... Yeah, and I, I really felt for him because he was so young, and it was not, you know, I think he'd been to business school, but it was not really... Uh, he didn't have the experience to kind of yeah. know exactly how to handle that. Yeah. Uh, and he was, you know, uh, people... Uh, even when I wrote about it, people were still really mad at them, even though the woman who accused, uh, who, who brought the allegation forward, um, continued to work there and, and, and speaks highly of the owner now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel like people should, people should know that. It's true. He made a mistake, but does it, you know, yeah. should, should you never visit the brewery again because the owner made a mistake and delayed a little bit too long? I don't know. Yeah. And I don't want to be dismissive of anything, but it's just, I, I can understand as a young business owner, you know, labor law is complicated and just. You know, immediately right. firing someone can jeopardize your business and all the employees that go along with it if you misstep and you do the wrong thing because then you can be in a world of legal trouble too. So it's complicated. I mean, I feel I feel for anyone in that situation. Yeah, I do um, too. But, uh, and, and obviously we, we feel for the, the woman who was harassed. Um, no, nobody's... <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, to, I, don't, uh, I don't mean uh, to diminish that, that, yeah. diminish that at all. I just, uh, I think it's very easy to, in a social media age, to just hit uh grab onto the one thing without sort of thinking of the whole context huh? totally uh so uh the next news item here's something potentially interesting from the brewers association which just released their mid-year report among the nuggets there comes this projection by economist bart watson after 17 years of brewery expansion that has taken the u.s from 1400 to 9300 breweries a plateau may be coming Watson projects that the U.S. will only add a net 200 breweries by 2024, and then uh, the growth in numbers will stop. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> there are many causes, but he mentioned an important one. Interest rates are higher than they've been since 2008, near the start of the current expansion. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because a lot of the stuff is financed. I hadn't thought about that until he mentioned, like, oh, yeah, of course. If you're uh, thinking of going into debt and you've, like, penciled out the numbers and you're right at your maximum amount and then boom all of a sudden the interest rates go up by two points you're probably kind of screwed yeah that makes a big difference uh what do you think do you think it's also part of a story of saturation yeah i do i feel like uh you know there's there's always going to be a chance that you can open a brewery at the at the corner and have a brew pub going like i basically infinite amount of those can can open up but, yeah um but there's just there's just fewer and fewer opportunities for people to uh, get their beer to a broader marketplace. So it's hard. It's it, uh, you know, to be the ten thousandth brewery in America is a lot harder than being the two thousandth. So yeah, it's less runway, less yeah, harder. It sure is. And I think there are a lot of sort of unsaturated pockets um, too. But 
you know, that's the chicken and the egg situation there. Do you start somewhere where there isn't a lot of penetration and people aren't necessarily ready for it? So, And fewer and fewer places like that. I mean, that's one thing I noticed last year when I was traveling around is like there's that there aren't those those states that are really underserved anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable how many places now in a sort of any moderately sized community will have a little local, at least a brew pub, if not, you know, a, a packaging brewery as well. Totally. So, yeah. All right, well, uh, we should turn to our um, interview with Justin. Indeed. Uh, uh, Justin Lee of uh, Devon Country Ale. So I guess there's not much uh, to do other than to just go to tape. All right. <laughs> We'd like to welcome Justin Lee, co-founder with his wife, Jocelyn, of Devon Country Ales in Goldendale, Washington. Justin focuses on elegant oak-aged wild ales, many that begin life in a cool ship just outside the brewery. Taking advantage of the agriculture around Goldendale, many are fruit forward. Dwinnell also makes ciders and parries. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, it's nice to have you just because you're doing something unusual uh, across the river and down, down and across the river. Um, but we're going to get to talk to you about something even more unusual uh, when we get into this interesting lawsuit. But before we do that, let's let's talk about your brewery, uh, your background, and how a Jersey kid via Chicago, I guess, uh, ended up in rural Washington State. Well, uh, I um, after undergrad didn't know what to do, like most people after uh, the 08 crash had happened. So. Um, made sense, like many, just to keep going to school. So uh, the best option at the time seemed to go to law school because I was like an English uh, major and everyone says, well, you like to read, you go to law school. It's like, you just read all the time. and uh, The skills are transferable. And while I was applying, I basically got into homebrew. Apparently there were some kids I knew from college. I went back and visited them. They were homebrewing and I thought this seemed like a cool hobby to get into. Um, started homebrewing and moved to Chicago for law school. Um, kind of had put homebrewing on the back burner a little bit until I met Jocelyn who um, told me about a beer she liked called La Folie. And I, and I was like, well, I don't like sour beer. You know, I think I had maybe a goose somewhere at one time and no one else was really making beers like that at the time. Um, not with any regularity or with much, you know, ubiquity in the marketplace. So we started making beers like that. And, and I had spent a lot of time homebrewing and, and helping out at some homebrew shops. And I knew that, you know, um, you know, if your girlfriend is not, or your, you know, your spouse is not into homebrewing, and you are, I mean, it's never going to happen because it's like, especially if you're in a small apartment, uh, if both people have to be on board with the hobby for it to really succeed, you know? Um, otherwise everyone's like, what's this pot doing here? What's this like exploding carboy doing in the bathroom? Why are all these bottles here? You know? Um, so I, I jumped on the opportunity to, you know, make this kind of a, a bonding opportunity for, in our relationship to start brewing together. And that kind of one thing led to another where we started making, I mean, at the time we started playing out, you know, kettle sours in our kitchen, in our apartment, doing some bioprospecting, wild captures, making these beers and thinking, hey, I mean, these are some of the best versions of these beers we've ever had. Um, maybe we can develop a business plan around this. And, you know, one thing led to another and uh, we continued to develop that plan and, and we moved to the Pacific Northwest, because this is where Jocelyn is from. She's from Vancouver, Washington. And um, we knew we wanted to buy property. You know, at first we had this sort of pastoral ideal vision of being on a, on a farm, you know, doing that sort of thing, maybe doing some farming. Um, and we came out to the sort of Portland, Vancouver area and started looking for properties. And with our budget, we were immediately priced out of Clark County or points north of there, uh, priced out of a lot of pretty much any property in the gorge, um, which has its own regulatory framework because of the gorge commission, which also was kind of getting in the way to this project being possible. And then we found Goldendale, um, which was great because property prices fit our budget six years ago. Um, 
And, you know, I'm from New Jersey. So I always just thought all of Washington was rainy, like Seattle and Portland, you know? And, and so it was kind of, you know, a breath of fresh air to say, oh, wow, this place is dry. It's high desert climate. It's sunny most of the year. So that was really appealing uh, and, and just kind of unique and different. And we thought, hey, you know, we're, uh, we're close enough to Portland. We're close enough to Seattle. And we're also close to a lot of the farmers that grow the ingredients that we want to use. So it all just seemed like it, it was the perfect opportunity. You know, Goldendale is, as much as it's in the middle of nowhere, it's also kind of middle of everything. So, and it just made sense for what we wanted to do. Um, we went down the road of looking for rural properties, but, you know, the, the way that they really kill you in at least Washington state, and it's similar, it's, it's, it's worse in Oregon, is just having a, a road that goes from, you know, your main road to your wherever you're having customers. So if you're on a farm and you've got a driveway that's a quarter mile or a half mile to your little tasting room, you have to meet, you know, elevated road standards. You got to spend a bunch of money on a driveway and having it be fire accessible. And we started running the numbers and it's like, well, I could buy a brew system with the amount of money to build a road just to get to my tasting room. And, and I've heard similar stories in other places of people that wanted to do this kind of rural farm brewery project um, in Washington state in particular. And it's like, that's the first thing that kills you. And then having like a commercial grade septic system is the next thing that kills you. Cause it's not just like your house septic. It is like a whole other level, you know, uh, these things become very cost prohibitive. So we uh, found a really cool garage shop in town here in uh, downtown Goldendale, which is a bustling metropolis as, as everyone knows. Yeah. But uh, it's great. Uh, let, me, you Justin, know. let me just, let me just mention for folks who may not be familiar with this part of the country, Goldendale is about exactly in the middle of the state, left to right, uh, but down on the Columbia River, just just north of the Columbia River. So it's it's that's what Justin's talking about. Yeah, totally. We're like, depending on who you talk to, we're in the gorge or we're not in the gorge. <laughs> but we're very close to the river. We're just ten to twelve miles north of the river. Um, it's a hundred miles east of Portland. Um, small kind of rural agricultural economy that's you know seeing better days as most ag economies have you know there was a big aluminum smelter that you know closed in the 80s due to like kind of globalizing economic trends that made it kind of made it obsolete and you know the town has never really recovered um but there was something about it that we really were attracted to one of them being the real estate prices and um but it's great we have great water we're on city water it's spring water that comes down from the Simcoe mountains um it's very soft tastes great and we're on a sewer that's also really nice you know it's compared to being on a septic or having to pump our waste and, and things like that you know in a rural setting um and we're able to get the power that we needed because uh, we actually operate in a, an electric brew system so yeah all these things just seem to work out and and uh Gosh, like in a week and a half, it'll be our fifth year anniversary here, in fact. And we had a tasting room. A third of our building is set up to be a, a bar tasting room, retail space. And we closed that at the beginning of the pandemic. And we completely pressed the reset button on the way we operated our business. We shifted towards canning and distribution. And so now the tasting room, a little corner is partitioned off for, with, with a fridge and, and a, a wire rack to go sales on the weekend. We also host private tastings by appointment only. And uh, the rest is just filled with uh, cans and kegs that are conditioning. So it's like our conditioning room in a way. And the plan it's right now is probably going to be to actually demolish the bar that exists and expand our production into here, maybe by the end of the year. So the model now is not trying to convince people to come to us, to come to Goldendale, because it's really a difficult proposition, you know, beyond someone's desire to visit us. There's nothing really else to do. There's not much of a supporting retail or hospitality or tourism economy. Uh, and we're like, we're an hour past Hood River. So a lot of people will still double back to Hood River, but most gorge tourists don't make it past Hood River in the first place. Um, so anyway, the model now is find our customers and get beer to them. And one of the ways that we initially identified wanting to be able to do that is through direct to consumer 
sales, which we'll you know touch upon in a little bit. Um, direct to consumer sales and um, dis- distribution. You know, Seattle, Portland, primarily. We have a distributor in California and a couple overseas as well that buys from us uh, periodically. So since you're now a distributing company, um, you you definitely have an interest in being able to get your product to market. So let's uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But before we do that, you're first and foremost a brewery. So let's let's drink some of your beer um, while <laughs> while we get into that. Uh, I think we all have. Do you? I don't. We I. You went and grabbed a beer. I don't know what you have, Justin. Uh, I got a cider. Oh, you have a cider. Okay, awesome. That's good. We'll, we'll cover all our bases here. So we all have kind of different Perfect. products. Um, I have I have uh, Echo Chamber, which is a Rosé Wild Ale. So this was a beer. So a lot of your beers go into a cool ship, uh, which is um, in a, a kind of uh, fenced area that's connected to the brewery. That's, just, that's on the outside of the brewery, but it's uh, it's connected there. When, when I visited you a month ago, we went and uh, studied it. It is a cool, cool ship. And I'm excited to try this beer. Uh, Patrick, what do you got? I have uh, the Grassroot Citra Brett Pills, which uh, according to the can is um, conditioned in a package with uh, retinomyces. Indeed. Uh, and using Citra Hops. So excited to taste that one. And you have the cider, Justin? Yeah, I'm drinking Forest, it's called. It's our dry cider or made from American apple varieties, mainly Jonathan and Roxbury Russet. Ah, cool. High, high acid, bone dry. We get all of our fruit currently from Easy Orchards in Salem, and we wild ferment everything in stainless, and then it's packaged pet nat, which really just means before it's done carbonating, Sorry, before it's done fermenting, we package it and it finishes in package, and that's where it develops its natural bubbles. And actually, um, but you're that's but what, well, you've got you've yeah. got orchards that you're putting in too, right? Yes, we also have an orchard about a mile and a half up the road with 120 trees on it, but they're all um, seedlings or saplings. They're not, you know, bearing any fruit. Nor are we allowing them to. Some of them, you know, put out some blossoms this year, and we're like, we pluck them off and. We just want them to grow roots right, right now. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, I've, got this, I've got this lovely rosé. And um, one of the things that I like about the beers that you make, Justin, is that uh, you go for a kind of uh, similar level of acidity in your beers. You try not to have uh, super acid beers. Uh, so even if they're wild, they're balanced. Uh, the fruit forward beers really pick a lot up from the, the fruit. Um, and uh, this is a, a perfect example of that. Would you talk just a little bit about how you're able to create balanced acidity in these beers? Sure. There's a couple things. I mean, the first is that we try not to have bacterial, you know, lactic acid bacteria from, from our mixed culture or from the culture that is captured in the, in the cool ship. So uh, we, we hop a lot more than maybe other sour producers would mm-hmm. um so the hops kind of keep the bacterial culture uh at bay for a period of time and then that allows us to try to rely on the acidity from the fruit itself you know the naturally occurring acidity in the fruit and with grapes in particular like the beer you're drinking has wine grapes in it we will pick them early intentionally because they're they have higher acid at that point and consequently lower sugar, which then allows us to keep the, the beer that we're making's alcohol content lower. Um, and so beyond that process, then we also uh, blend pretty much every single beer that we make. Um, similar to what you might call a beer decoupage. So you take uh, a wild beer or saison, age it, maybe with fruit, for you know, up to a year or more, and then blend it with a young saison, um, and it allows us to cut through the acidity, um, cut through the oak character to the extent it exists, um, and just kind of achieve a lot more balance in our product. And so it's nice because from a wild ale production standpoint, you can kind of let the beers do their thing, and you know that you can kind of reel them in or shepherd them in, in a certain direction when it comes to blending and packaging. 
This is a very nice beer. The fruit and acid, of course, play very well together. Wine itself is acidic, as we've talked about a lot on the podcast. So, um, you know, it's it's already a natural kind of harmoni- harmonious thing. I mean, one, one thing that I really appreciate about your beers is they're, they're not funky um, in that lambic sense of a lot of barnyard and compost and maybe a little acetic and a bunch of stuff like that there it's a much cleaner wild than you get in a lot of places uh which you know i'm I'm tasting here and and i think you do a really good job of creating a house effect so when you taste a duanel beer it tastes like duanel and um the the components may look a little bit different but it's really you're, you're really getting a nice uh uh, quality of, uh, of Duanel in it. So it's a great beer. I think, I, you know, I could talk, uh, I could talk about how we do that. I mean, but the reason, the reason why we do it is because I, I don't like those finale Brett flavors. Some people call them old world flavors, you know, the barnyard yeah. horse blanket. Um, it works well sometimes, but I try not to make beers like that. I think Brett has the ability to be a lot more citrusy and fruity, and it can be strain dependent, but it's also other decisions you make. Hop dosage, hop varietal selection, you know, um, and temperature and time in, in your fermentation as well. And I do think that, you know, the mixed cultures that will propagate and experiment with are probably more like wild sack forward as well mm-hmm. um but then it's like you know there's a perception that brett beers are that phenolic old world kind of dusty whatever you know flavor profile right and you know i want to challenge people and say no you can have a, a beer that's a brett beer and it doesn't taste like that at all you know so um you know a lot of brett beers you see on the shelf or they're still sort of aiming for that phenolic character um and i think it's because people just think, you know, this is what a bread beer tastes like. And I kind of want to challenge that and maybe redefine what that flavor profile could be. Um, yeah, the beer I'm the beer I'm tasting, the Citra Brett Pills, is a perfect example of that. The Brett is present, but it's very clean, even bright Brett note that plays really interestingly with the, the Citra hops, which are present, but it's not in like a big, sweet IPA. So it's not saturated, but it's a very clean and dry uh, flavor profile. It's really interesting. I really like it a lot. Yeah, it looks Thanks. good. Yeah. I, Patrick's in a different room, so I can't drink that beer, but I'm following <laughs> it with hunger or thirst. I guess. Yeah, that beer is interesting because we did a, a clean, you know, lager fermentation. We brought in a, a, a German lager strain, did a lager with, it was all citra hops. And then we, we actually brought in a, a pure culture of Brett C which is known for doing more tropical citrusy things, um, propagated that. And basically, you know, the lager fermentation finished, uh, there was residual sugar as there is with that yeast strain. And then all we did was we added the Brett and we canned it. Yeah. So all the carbonation is from the Brett fermentation. So in a way it's also sort of, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's very effervescent at the beginning and it dissipates very quickly. But yeah, it's um. There's no there's no hint of barnyard funk at all. Um, but the Brett is clearly present, and it's really nice. Yeah. So you're making these lovely beers. Uh, they're distinctive. They're not. They're unusual in the sense that I don't think anybody else is making beers that taste like them. So you have you're you're situated here in the Pacific Northwest. So you have a this, this big old market that loves good beers, and uh, you're ten miles from Oregon. But it turns out uh, getting into Oregon is not the easiest thing in the world. You like, are you, are you loving my segue here? Uh, <laughs> let's talk about your lawsuit. Uh, it's actually, sure. it's actually, you were not um, listed as one of the three breweries, but um, you were kind of the impetus for the whole thing. So do you want to tell us w- what you saw and what, what was bothering you? When I started down this road, I, I knew this wasn't right, you know, and then I kind of learned about this Granholm v. Healed Supreme Court case from 0506. And at the time, it wasn't fully clear. Like basically that Supreme Court case said that, you know, in-state governments can't treat out-of-state, you know, businesses different, you're less favorable than their in-state ones. And that Supreme Court case was dealing with wineries and it was in Michigan and New York. And so it wasn't actually clear at the time, like 
weather and to what extent it applied to beer and stuff like that. But since then, there have been other cases and the case law has developed and that has become more clearly explicit that, you know, beer is included. And basically the idea was like, well, Oregon's letting Oregonian breweries, people with an Oregon address self-distribute and do all this stuff, but not us. And it seems like they're treating us differently. And it seemed to kind of go against what the Supreme Court case law was saying on the topic. Um, and I mean, at the time it was like, well, we got the, we got the distributor. Let's just do this for now. We don't have to bother fighting. Um, but it definitely was something that, you know, a worm that got in my brain and been thinking about this for a long time. The, uh, the ruling the Granholm versus Heald, uh, which was argued in front of the Supreme Court. So it was based on, um, uh, I mean, this is a pretty, pretty big case law. Uh, and it was based on something called the Commerce Clause, which uh, regulates how business is done through the several states. I think I'm getting that language right. Patrick, do you, as an economist, do you, uh, have you encountered the, the, the Commerce Clause? What, what do you- Yeah, the Commerce Clause is a big deal be- about intrastate um... Uh, sorry, interstate uh, commerce that, uh, as far as I understand, I stand to be corrected as always, uh, it's the federal government that regulates interstate commerce and states are not allowed to do that. In other words, uh, you know, if I'm a trucking company and I'm shipping one thing from uh, Minnesota to Illinois, Wisconsin can't step in and prevent my, maybe that's a bad example. But anyway, the idea is that is that states can't independently uh, prevent commerce across state lines, um, that that's the federal jurisdiction is, as, as I understand. And so uh, some of the, I remember a case that had to do, I think it was a dairy milk or cream or something in Massachusetts, they were charging a tax, specific tax to out-of-state dairies to sell milk or something like that in Massachusetts. And that was struck down. You can't preferentially uh, tax uh, Massachusetts dairies um, uh, so that's the that's the one that I have in the back of my mind, but um, it seems very similar in this in this scenario that you're treating out of state entities differently than in state entities. And it seems like yeah, from a, that... an economic perspective, like you couldn't do business if this if we didn't have these kinds of if every state could become its own choke point, everything would collapse. It seems like that. Yeah, it's the idea that the United States is sort of a common mar- a common market, and so that commerce has to. It, you know, this goes dates back right to the foundings of the country, so it was pretty small at the time, <laughs> stuff that was going back and forth across borders. But the idea is that once, if states can start restricting movement of goods and services across borders, then you sort of collapse as a common market and it creates all of these uh, disruptions and is harmful uh, economically to the country itself. And so the country's interests are to have commerce to be free across state lines. So Justin, you, uh, yeah. you, you have crafted I worked uh, on this legal remedy. Um, I understand that you actually found the lawyers uh, in the Midwest who worked on the Granholm case uh, to, yeah. to to create this uh, this lawsuit. What what exactly is the lawsuit seeking? It's seeking for the the court to declare these two rules as unconstitutional, and thus they're you know that the state would be restrained from enforcing them. So you know, enforcing is, a violation, yeah. This is direct to consumer and uh, self-distribution. Yeah, yeah. There's the self-distribution, which we were talking about a bit before. And then there's, we could go into the direct to consumer rules. Whereas similarly, uh, Oregon breweries can ship beer to individual consumers at their home. But Oregon, but Washington breweries can't do that to Oregon residents, um, and that is um, kind of violates a similar commerce clause rule, and so, also it violates like there's a, a, another element that kind of violates this aspect of the Granholm case, which we could, we could dive into. Yeah, well, let's do dive into it, and and I, yeah. and, I, and while we're diving into it, tell me why Dwinell is not part of the lawsuit. Yes, yeah, so I thought that I was going to have. I thought that I was going to need to bring a, a claim as a defense um, for things that I, well, we don't have to go into it. I thought I might have to defend myself. Yeah. Right. And, and so basically I was like, 
okay, I need to start researching this. So I have this in my back pocket ready to go in case I get like uh, slapped on the wrist or something. Right. And I was trying to pull the pleadings from the Granholm case because I wanted to see how they actually pled them in their lawsuit. You know, what was what do they actually say? You, you read the Supreme Court opinion, but, you know, it's hard to access those underlying court documents. And I couldn't find them on the Supreme Court website. And so, but then I found a page for the lawyer, one of the lawyers who litigated it. It was his own personal page where he had links. And it was like, jackpot. He's got all the pleadings from all the different courts, but the links were broken. <laughs> so I just emailed him, you know, and I kind of, and I emailed him uh, from my lawyer email because something I've learned as a lawyer is like, you can kind of get like, 10 minutes of free legal advice from any lawyer if you're a lawyer <laughs> and so that's kind of like what i thought best case scenario would happen here he would just be like oh yeah sure here are all the documents and i gave him a little bit of a background on it and he wrote me back and said oh can i call you and i said sure and then him and his partner called me up a few days later um and wanted me to kind of provide more detail about it and then just said you know uh we think you have a really strong case here uh, and we'd like to take it on basically. Uh, and these, this is how these guys operate is, you know, with these cases, they, they've litigated dozens of them. And what they do is they front all the fees and all their time. And then when they win, there is a, a, a statutory provision, a federal statute that allows them to recoup all their fees. So they get paid at the end, you know, um, it's a, it's a long con, but like, you know, when you get involved with civil rights law, um, I mean, you know, that you're also kind of doing it for the, you know, the greater good, or at least for uh, your ideals and the, the change that you want to see happen. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it happened. And then basically as we started developing this and trying to get different parties involved, it became apparent that because of my, uh, experiences owning a Washington brewery, you know, that's being discriminated against and owning an Oregon distributor who's being favored perhaps in certain situations. And on top of that, being a lawyer who understands all these things, they said, you know, you'd be better as our expert witness, but then that means that you really can't be a plaintiff, like a party to the lawsuit. Um, and yeah. so that's, I mean, that's really basically why I kind of pulled my name, you know, or involvement on that level. We got other plaintiffs involved but I still was orchestrating and organizing and collaborating on making it happen. Gotcha. So we're, uh, we probably don't have a huge amount of time uh, to continue going here. We, I think we've been going about a half an hour, but, um, but I do want to hear you and I had some back and forth and you, you felt like uh, this highlights some of the ways in which uh, the Oregon's regulatory scheme has really been beneficial to Oregon. <laughs> and I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are and how, uh, you know, Oregon is a, perhaps the most robust craft industry, uh, you know, has the, the most active local breweries of any state in the country. Um, talk a little bit about what you see there. And I, I think maybe this is an example of way, the way regulation really perverts or favors or in any way, puts its thumb on, on the favor of, of certain entities. Sure, I mean, part of it goes to maybe the way that I uh, understand economics and culture. But like, to me, you know, you have these regulatory structures and they're giving rise to a certain economic environment and that shapes people's cultural experiences. So if people in Oregon are very parochial and they're like, I only drink Oregon beer, you know, that sort of thing. I would also say, well, yeah, I mean, you have this preference as a consumer, that, but it's being shaped by the laws of your state. <laughs> you know, your state's laws are limiting producers' access to that marketplace, which in turn are limiting or at least shaping your consumer choice, you know, and your perceptions as a consumer and your preferences are like this type of beer, you know, um, and I don't like that type of beer. So, you know, I would argue that, I mean, in some ways, the, you know, Oregonian um, standpoint of, you know, we're, we're very nativist and we only like our own, you know, our own products. I think it's a little ideological. It's just something they're telling themselves to like keep that going. And I, I think that at a certain point, you start allowing other producers from other markets to access that market. 
I think people's um, views are going to change. I don't, you know, um, because I think it is most, it is about taste. Uh, you know, as somebody that makes beers that are very place-based, we have struggled and, and tossed and turned about like how much information is too much. Like, you know, where the grain comes from, where the fruit comes from, what's the farmer's name, you know, what's his dog's name, all this stuff. How many years has the farm been in their family? You try to tell the story because we think that people are interested, or at least it's important to us. So we want to tell the story, but a lot of people ultimately don't really care. I mean, it's like, why is the organic certification such a, like a non-important thing in beer in this country? And it's huge in Europe, right? Like in, in other countries. It's like it doesn't it's not valuable to people so i think that you know th what people value at the end of the day is you know with, when it comes to craft beer is it doesn't taste good you know um I mean, just look at the, all the me too um things that have been going on in craft beer and the fraction of people that actually know about what's going on and care is so small compared to the, the craft beer consumer at large you know most people don't think about this stuff I think they just want something that is enjoyable to drink, you know, and, and of course maybe fits their uh, budget. Right. But um, so I do think that, you know, I see this as an opportunity to like change people, you know, consumers perceptions about what it is they like. And honestly, like I, it's not like I'm trying to go after Oregon breweries or something. Um, but I think that from a competitive standpoint, I think it's a positive thing. Because I think, you know, as an Oregon brewery, you have other uh, products coming in, particularly ones that are high caliber. I think it motivates or behooves you to, you know, maintain your competitive, comp competitive level, you know, from a production or a quality control or innovation standpoint, or even from like a, you know, an HR standpoint or like how you, right, how you treat your employees or how you treat your customers, things like that. I think it's a good thing. Patrick, uh, I'm curious. So uh, as this story was unfolding, we, we heard about this thing that was happening in New Jersey where the New Jersey Bar Association, there's only 5,000 bar licenses in New Jersey. And because they're so valuable, uh, the bar owners there don't want tap rooms to exist because uh, they, you know, they consider that like coming in on their turf. And these things are, you can actually sell them, the liquor license. Uh, they're worth like a million dollars. This is another kind of an example, another example of the way a regulatory uh, decision has shaped uh, a, a local market. In in an economy, what what do economists think about these 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 laws that sort of shape the way you know commerce functions and who can participate, and who can't participate? Well, I mean, a typical economist like me would say that the New Jersey system is simply a rent creation system so if you're one of the lucky uh, uh owners of one of those 5,000 licenses you get to charge more money because of lack of competition and you get to collect rents and that's bad in general economics because it doesn't benefit consumers they pay more you're not being paid more because of your particular skill or uh, uh wonderful uh, ability to create a fantastic bar you're being create you're being paid money because you happen to have one of these scarce licenses and so rents are generally just bad <laughs> as an economist <laughs> because they're just no good they're just um they're just uh, artificial payments that you get because of this regular this bureaucratic uh construct that limits access to markets and particularly as a consumer those are bad like that's not what you want you want cheaper beer and you want more places to enjoy it right and so in, in sort of translating into this context uh, as a consumer in oregon uh i don't want uh other breweries from other states to be restricted access because i would like my beer uh better and cheaper and more varieties and that's what i'll get if the market is is open so speaking as a pure sort of economic concept this kind of stuff is almost uh, i'm sure you could find someone to argue the opposite but almost unequivocally bad Okay. Yeah. Well, we don't have someone else. We have you. So you get the final word on it. <laughs> so you get my, my opinion. That's it. <laughs> like the gospel. Yeah. Well, Justin, it seems like you are uh, out here on the leading edge. I'm sure if, if uh, this lawsuit goes forward, uh, it could have, you know, every state has their own 
you know, the, the brewery laws in every state are weird and there's competing things. So it could have uh, far reaching uh, ramifications. What, what do you see going forward? What, like, what do the next few years look like in terms of the lawsuit? Sure. Yeah. So procedurally it's a slow burn, that's for sure. And it's a lot of what we go into the discovery phase, which is where parties share um, information. So you do depositions, you answer written interrogatories, things like that. And that's pretty much mostly what's going to happen because there's not a question of fact here. It's all legal questions. It's not like, is Justin's brewery actually located in Washington or something like, oh, no, we can prove that or we can't. We're basically saying this law violates the, you know, the Constitution and this part of the Constitution. And then the judges will look, read through the case law. And so it's not like there's, there will be no trial because trials are for proving facts. Um, it will be this sort of discovery phase. And then a judge will issue a ruling. And um, at which point or the judge might wait if there are other cases going on, perhaps in other states, they might wait for those to be adjudicated to help guide their decision because judges, uh, especially elected ones, they don't like having their rulings over, overturned by a higher court. Doesn't look good, right? It's not, not really good job security. So, you know, they're gonna be cautious and conservative about their decision-making process. And what's very possible is that this might get consolidated at a higher level with other cases. Um, and so we were looking at three to five years until really there's like a final decision here. Um, uh, Justin, has the state of Oregon indicated that they're going to um, fight this or well, any chance that they'll? It, it's, you know, this is kind of a funny thing because it's not like a, a private lawsuit or even, you know, with a, individuals or a, or a non-governmental agency where, you know, um, the defending party will have a, a, an official statement quickly and maybe try to shape public perception through, you know, different things with the media. Um, this is a super bureaucratic thing. So like the, the attorney general office has to process this. They need to come up with a statement. It's got to be approved by a bunch of people. Then it goes to the press, you know, department, and then they'll issue something. And they are legally obligated to defend this basically. I believe it's like written in the constitution. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know, so it'll be, it'll be interesting. Yeah. They will be the attorney general's office will defend it. Um, and I guess at some point, maybe in the next couple of weeks, maybe they'll issue some sort of statement, you know, put it out there in the universe. Um, and I think I read one article where they, the, the writer reached out to like the AG's office and it was like the, the press person was, was on vacation. So, you know, <laughs> Who knows? Like, it'll be interesting, too, because it's this is what the court would say is on its face discriminatory or facially discriminatory is the way it's raised. And so it's not like, oh, is this discriminatory? Is it not? You're clearly treating these two different in-state, out-of-state businesses differently. There's no there's no factual dispute about that. So then what the standard of review becomes is what the, the Supreme Court has called strict scrutiny. You know, they say you need to have like a if you're going to discriminate. They're saying like, not all discrimination is illegal. You have to meet this standard. The burden of proof is on you, the discriminating government, to prove that this is, you're doing it and it's for like a good, re- a good enough reason. And in this case, it's like, you have to have a compelling reason and it has to be like the least restrictive means necessary to achieve your goal. And it's like, okay, well, government, legislator, what was your goal here in creating this discriminatory framework? And that is going to be interesting to see what they say. Because I don't, I couldn't, even, I don't even know, like what, what I, I couldn't even like make up, you know, double right. advocate, like what they're. <laughs> it was fascinating so, because, right, the attorney general's office is going to have to come up with a story. Who knows what it was when they made the law, but now they're going to have to somehow come up with a story that sort of well describes what they were thinking at the time, right? And it may yeah, not even like have the, been a particularly malignant thing. It may have just been like yeah. all the states are making their own laws and they don't they don't reconcile and they never go back and consider them. Um, so yeah, yeah, they could say when we when we made the self distro rule for the in-state brews, well, no one else asked or something. Or right. or the lobbyist, well, he's retired now, so I don't know what he wanted exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, there's a lot of in, it's beer. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of lobbyists, a lot of a lot of power and money influencing um, you know, 
things that come out of the legislature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is awesome, uh, Justin. I think I think we'll all really uh, be interested to see how this unfolds. Um, If the podcast is still around in three to five years, when the uh, (laughs) ruling comes out, maybe we'll we'll loop back around and get you on the podcast and and hear what happened, and you can tell us uh, break it down. Yeah, and if if it goes like if it gets consolidated and goes to the Supreme Court, you could have your like Washington bureau cover it. I can meet them. Right. <laughs> you can meet out there. Yeah. That's right. We'll get a press credential and get to be in the chamber. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the pay isn't good, but um, we'll, tr- we'll figure something out. Cool. All right. Uh, well, thank you. We, we want to encourage everyone who is uh, in the Northwest to try to track down some Dwinell Country Ales, uh, Ciders, or Perry, uh, as, you, as you like. Um, I would say in particular, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a beer drinker look for some of their beers. Uh, they're really good beers. They're interesting beers and they're really distinctive beers. So you don't see that always, um, especially a brewery that's working with wild ales to give them a house character is hard to do. And I'm impressed with how Justin does that. So, so definitely give these beers a look when you're in anywhere near us, or if you live here, uh, do that. Um, Patrick, any final words before we say goodbye? I just wanted to point out one other thing, which is one of the things I really appreciate Justin about Justin's beers is that there are many beers he makes that are relatively lighter, lower alcohol, which for me is fantastic. Um, very uh, full of flavor and character and interesting beers, um, but they don't wallop you. Um, so uh, like mine is a 4.1% uh, the Citrus Brett Pills, and it's excellent. And it's um, so I, I kudos to that. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, mine's only four seven, so there. That's that's a thing, Justin does. Uh, most I think most of your beers are uh, like five and a half and below or something. Oh, I'm doing a how low can you go uh, thing right now. <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got a, a saison coming out this month that's three seven. It's a dry oh, house saison. These are you know, we're just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're very flavorful beers, so you don't need a lot of alcohol. Um, you, you're getting a, a tremendous amount of alcohol or flavor, sorry, not alcohol, flavor through the uh, fermentation process. So yeah, that's, exactly. That's, that's the flavor punch right there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jason, Justin. Uh, thank and you, Justin. Uh, we will, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Yeah. Good luck with everything. Uh, so thanks again to Justin, uh, Justin Lee, co-founder with his wife Jocelyn of Dwinell Country Ales in Goldendale, Washington. Look for their beers in stores near you. I did want to make one, uh, just make sure it's clear the the sort of the idea of the Commerce Clause. Um, at least what they're arguing is it's okay to say nobody can self-distribute in Oregon, but it's not okay to say only Oregon brewers can, can self-distribute, but out-of-state brewers can't. That's the legal argument there, that you can't discriminate uh, against out-of-state uh, breweries, that that violates the Commerce Clause. And that, um, in my lay analysis, uh, has a very good legal standing because it seems there are a number of cases that have suggested, yes, that states cannot uh, treat um, out-of-state businesses uh, differently. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know anything about the law either, but it, it, since there was a Supreme Court case argued uh, on almost an identical case, that seems like it's a very strong case to me. Yeah. So. Well, good luck to them uh, with that. Yeah. Uh, as a consumer of beer in Oregon, I would like a more open market. I think that would be great. But yeah, I, I feel like um, I I don't actually think it's going to matter that much. I think the market is in Oregon is, is tough enough that yeah. um, it's not going to really open it up all that much for Washington breweries. But I do think we should have it should be a level playing field. Like everybody should be working with the same rules. So. Yeah. Just a fairness issue for me. Great. Well, should we turn to the mailbag? Yep. Let's we'll, do. We, we have a quickie, I think. All right. Why don't you read uh, our mailbag? Okay. Uh, our friend Zach at Unicorn, C-Pod, I don't know. I'm going to say 138. <laughs> yeah. Type unicorn in your search engine. That's right. <laughs> uh, he, wrote, he writes, uh, I love discovering and brewing forgotten beer styles and have attempted many recreations, Kentucky Common, Horner Beer, etc. Uh, from Europe and North America. There's an obvious lack of info in beer writing on fermentation styles from Africa and Asia, two massive continents. Mm. A few quick online searches haven't led me to much. Of course, availability of ingredients and climate play roles. Still, can you point me to a good starting point 
uh, or two to read more about non-European brewing slash fermentation history? And the answer is no, I can't. So <laughs> oh, good. That's a good good letter for you to to flag and let's answer it on the on the pod. Well, I what I can say is uh, if you're willing to dig around. Um, there are ways to figure this information out, but the books uh, need to be written, and I would love, love, love to write uh, a book on traditional brewing. It's something that I've had in the back of my head for a decade, but I don't know how I could fund it because it would require traveling around the world uh, for to create a book that would sell uh, like 100 copies. Yeah, I mean, my experience in traveling in low-income countries in Asia, and I've not been to Africa, unfortunately, but I would like to, is that there's a lot of just European brewing styles that have been imported there and that's definitely true but a lot of those places still have traditional brewing and right that's you, what i was about to say is yeah. that the, un, the finding those traditional right brewing is hard even as a consumer right like they've been subsumed largely to the big european style breweries yeah it's much more the uh a, a kind of i don't want to say gray market because i think it's probably legal stuff but like uh, in Africa, for example, I think most of the traditional brewing can be found in um, uh, like village uh, uh, outdoor markets. Yeah, you can go and you know somebody's got beer there, and you can go up and lay a few bucks down. Or I don't know, I don't know right. what the, the economy is based on there. But uh, and the one thing I will say that's really fun if you want to while away some time is look up uh, African brewing, tr- traditional African brewing. Uh, on YouTube, there are some mm. videos of people making it, and it's pretty darn cool. Yeah, I've I've spent I've spent some hours uh, going through those videos, and it's really cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, so we don't have a non-answer. <laughs> no, we don't. Uh, I I agree with Zach. It's it's some it's a big lacuna in the in the written corpus, and I would love to fill it, but I so far haven't figured out how to do that yet. Yeah. Cool. All right. A few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so uh, send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter or Instagram. Both of them are the same address, at Pod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics. All right. Uh, cheers, Jeff. You left your glass behind, but there you go. (laughs) That was good. Cheers. All right, cheers.